Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, you may not be shocked to learn. We'll hear from Matt Kierkegaard, who's been observing the presidential election in Peru for the Progressive International. And then Ross Barkin, author of a new book on the dreadful Andrew Cuomo, will explore the governor's awfulness. In April, Peru held elections for the president and all 130 seats in Congress. Since there were 18 candidates for the top office, no one got 50% of the vote, so there was a runoff election between the top two vote-getters this past Sunday, June 6th. The ideological divide between those candidates is stark. Pedro Castillo is a schoolteacher and a socialist, and Keiko Fujimori is the very right-wing daughter of the now-jailed former president, Alberto Fujimori, who is serving a long sentence for bribery and embezzlement. His rule, which ran from 1990 to 2000, was brutal and authoritarian, with thousands killed in a nasty war against the madly violent Sendero Luminoso, Shining Path, the guerrilla movement. As I'm recording this, Castillo is less than half a percentage point ahead of Fujimori. Fujimori is screaming fraud, but with no evidence to back up her claims, and outside observers say the voting was clean. One of those observers is Matt Kierkegaard of the Progressive International. Here he is with more. Matt Kierkegaard. It's an extraordinarily close election, right? Uh, Less than a percentage point uh, between the two candidates last I looked? That's right. Yeah. I mean, what I'm seeing now is uh, we're down to a margin of 75,000 votes. Yes, it's less than a percentage point. It's 50.22 to 49.77. It's going to be a nail biter for certain. So let's have some background about the candidate. Castillo is, um, as I just read in the Financial Times, struck fear in the Peruvian elite, and they've been like spearing their money out of the country, fearing expropriation. Tell us something about the candidate and uh, how justified are these fears that the Marxists are going to take their money away? I forget which paper in Europe or in the United States called him a firebrand, of course, this uh, cliche of Latin American leaders from the left wing. I mean, in reality, he's a soft-spoken, rural teachers union leader. I mean, he's a farmer. The man grew up without running water or electricity. He's teaching at the same school where he attended. He's really a man of the people in the most extraordinary ways and a, and a man of the working class. And I mean, I think his slogans reflect that better than anything else. His two main slogans, one is no more poor people in a rich country. And the other is the word of the teach, uh, word of a teacher or teacher's honor, basically. This is what he's running on. And of course, he is proposing a, a shift to the economic model in a serious way. But fears of, of some you know, major uh, shift from a, from, from a fiery leader, I think, are overblown. It's, this is a reaction to what the people are demanding, which is a new constitution, which is a new social contract, just basic, basic economic and, and social rights for the, for the people of Peru here. Lately, I think, what, last week they revealed uh, that the COVID death toll was much higher than it previously been uh, estimated, and uh, this gave Peru one of the worst rates in the world. Has that had any uh, impact on, on the politics, on the election? I, I mean, I should say that I think it hasn't affected the election process itself, thankfully. I mean, there's always a fear, especially as you know, we as electoral observers, in this pandemic process, pandemic is yet another weapon that can be mobilized to, to disenfranchise voters. I think this is something that at least I was personally worried about. And I, I don't think we've seen that. They take, you know, in part, as you mentioned, because of the just staggering death toll here, the death rate, everyone is wearing face shields. It's something that I've never seen anywhere. And I, I, I live in Latin America. Double masking is, of course, imperative. But here they take it even one step further and wear wear a face shield uh, going into any sort of public uh, public place, getting into a cab, going into a, a, a grocery store, et cetera. So there really is, uh, you know, the highest level of COVID precautions. But fortunately, all of the process has proceeded normally and without disruption. Uh, but of course, you know, it has dramatically affected the population, affected the working class here. I would suspect, though, I can't draw any you know, on any clear evidence, but similar to what we're seeing in, in Colombia with you know, uprisings after the population has lost jobs and hasn't received any sort of assistance from the government, hasn't received vaccines yet either. People are very desperate for change. They're desperate for basic dignity. 
Um, and I think this is, you know, a good deal of what uh, of what Pedro Castillo is, is representing here. Rather than Keiko Fukimori, a, a turn back to the past, an establishment who's already lost the last two presidential elections she's, she's contested here. Did it affect the uh, political atmosphere? Did people judge the government negatively, the, the, the hardened attitudes towards the, uh, the ruling class? Absolutely, absolutely. But I, I think that was, you know, really that, that erupted in the most serious way. Late last year, late in 2020, there was a legislative coup or whatever you want to call it, uh, a legislative removal of the president who that was not seen as legitimate by vast swaths of the population. And uh, the new president was in for, for a week and then they were also removed. And now we have a third president who has had a term of a poll seven months here and there will be a new president coming in again. So, you know, the people really rose up in a, in a historic way late in 2020, which has led us to this moment. But, but that really is what set the tone for these elections in, in June rather than, I think, uh, COVID directly. It was uh, this explosion that had already uh, sort of been set off. And now we're sitting in the, in the aftermath of that. Fujimori, of course, is accusing uh, or claiming that there are all kinds of irregularities in the balloting. As an observer, have you seen anything like that? No, we have not. Uh, I, I haven't seen any evidence of, of any sort of systematic fraud uh, from anything that I've seen or from anyone that I've spoken with. What has been much more apparent is just an atmosphere of intimidation, especially from the right wing to, to the left, advertising constantly of don't put the, the terrorists and the communists and the, the Castro Chavistas into office. Think about your country. Think about everything we've struggled so hard for. Venezuela is like the negative example, right? Exactly. Yes. Talk to cab drivers here and they say, yeah, you know, I like, I like Pedro Castillo. I think he's an honest man, but unfortunately he's a communist. Unfortunately, he wants to turn us into Venezuela. <laughs> so, you know, there, this, is, this is the sort of uh, the most concerning bit is, you, you know, observing the election in its whole context, right? I mean, I think just watching the onslaught of, of media attacks in a, in a way that is really, I mean, unprecedented from anything I've seen. It's, there's an 80% concentration of media in the hands of just one media company on the right, on the right wing. So public discourse, if you want to call it that, uh, is quite one-sided, and independent media is, is quite, quite hard to come by. You mentioned that uh, Fujimori lost two previous elections. That's right. And her yes, father uh, left in disgrace, right? So how That's has she recover, managed to recover from <laughs> those uh, blows? That's right. I mean, I think there is a large portion of the population that, you know, are strong Fujimoristas. They're strong supporters of both Keiko and her, her father Alberto, who's currently serving prison time here in, in Peru. And so, you know, part of her candidacy is uh, hearkening back to those times, especially for those who want to remember them fondly. What are those fond memories? What, what exactly? Are we on? <laughs> those fond memories are the memories of, you know, stability, of strong state control and fighting the Sendero Luminoso, the, the rebels, um, basically, and bringing peace through fear is essentially the strategy. Well, now what happened to Sendero? Um, you know, in some of the other uh, Latin American countries, the former guerrillas went into uh, straight politics. Did any of that, uh, any of the Senderos do that? Some did. It's, it's very, you know, many were killed. Many renounced the struggle entirely. There's a, a very small group that are, that are continuing the struggle in, in the countryside, specifically in the, in the highlands and in the, in the Amazon. But by and large, it's, it's now sort of in the past. Most of the participants were left disgraced. It's not a movement. It's not a, <laughs> it wasn't a, a force that's remembered fondly here on any section of, of the Peruvian left from communists to social democrats to, to any bit of it. So it's, you know, it's really something that is in the past, but Keiko Fujimori keeps trying to bring the memories of that back to, to people's minds and, and trying to claim that you know, Pedro Castillo was a member or affiliated with them in some way, when in actuality he was a, a rondero. He was a, a, a peasant patrolman that um, defended peasant communities in, in his rural community against both the marauding so-called uh, left-wing, you know, Sendero Luminoso, but also the government and its, its paramilitary groups. What does she offer as, a, as an agenda, as a program? Her agenda is essentially more of the same, furthering the, the already so entrenched neoliberal process here, but also, you know, with some, some handouts here or there at the debate. I think this was, you know, one of her most surprising proposals from my perspective, you know, thinking about giving money to the population and in small disbursements. This has been her, her latest attempt to offer anything because otherwise it's 
just offering fear and a known quant, a known com- a known quantity, you know, is is compared to a, the other side of scary Castro Chavismo uh, specters that she's tried to conjure in, in the place of Pedro Castillo. What about the social structure of Peru? Um, who, who are the elite exactly? They're certainly in Lima. So, I mean, one of the most, I think, one of the most striking things of the Peruvian context is you know, roughly a third of the population lives. It's a very urban, relatively cosmopolitan environment with a lot of immigration from, from East Asia, as well from, uh, from other parts of, of Latin America, Venezuela, particularly in this moment. And it leans much more to the conservative side, whereas in the country, in the countryside, and, and of course the countryside is quite varied, but it changes everything from the Andes near the border of Peru and the highlands of Cusco to the Amazon, much less populated and, and very difficult to get to. There's no road crossing the Andes at this, at this point. So it's, uh, it's, it's a very isolated region from the rest of the country. And then the northern, the more agrarian countryside in the north and, and the, the, you know, the fishing economy of the coast. Uh, this is sort of how I would I'd describe the, the regions roughly. And Lima, if you look at the res- election results and if you look at a map, you know, essentially the right wing wins in, wins in Lima and a, a province here or there. And the rest of it is, is all won by, in this case, Castillo, but in past elections, won by people like Ollantol Mala uh, in 2011 bringing a sort of a, a nationalist left-wing program. So this is, this is the way that the country breaks down. And the, the elite themselves, you know, there's a lot of mining interests here. So this is, this is one, one component. Is that where the big money is? A lot of the big money is in mining. But of course, all of that wealth is just exported out of the country. There's not a lot of value-added products here. It's the export of raw materials that is, is how, how the economy functions. And you know, as GDP goes up, as the more gold and more copper come out of those mines, it of course leaves the country and that wealth also leaves the country um, and the people are left with the environmental effects of, of large mining projects and everything that they entail. So it's been that way, you know, not just not just now, but I think throughout the entire history of Peru and, um, and uh, it's one of the most striking elements of, of the political economy. I'm speaking with Matt Kierkegaard, coordinator of the Progressive International's delegation to observe the Peruvian election. So when Casillo speaks of this being a rich country, well, that's what he's talking about, all that mining wealth that disappears? Not only mining wealth, but I mean, rich in every sense, right? Culturally rich, a huge agricultural sector, but now they're forced to, to import corn from the United States, even though they produce plenty of corn, uh, you know, here and have for, for, for many, uh, for many millennia. But yeah, you know, it's the export of, of primary products of raw materials. And of course, just the bleeding of the country rather than being able to economy for, for the people of Peru uh, that, that, that actually, you know, does some justice to, to the workers here. And what did uh, Castillo propose to do about all this? Castillo is proposing the nationalization of some of these resources, you know, specifically in the, in the, in the mining and, and oil and gas sectors. He's talking about making a, a public agrarian bank to make sure that small farmers can compete with you know, larger international agricultural interests. He's talking about a second agrarian reform. Uh, there's never been you know, a real substantive agrarian reform in in Peru, and this would be a huge step towards more equitable land redistribution, especially in the rural, poor, and working classes. And you know, these are some of the proposals. But uh, you know, I think it all hinges on on a new constitution. You know, that we're still we're still dealing with the constitution here of, of Alberto Fujimori, and you know, in a similar case to what's now happened in in Chile, where you know the Pinochet constitution is now behind them, and they've been left to draft a, a new, probably more radical constitution. Um, you know, for rights and emphasizing plurinationality. This is what the clear popular demand here polling has shown that this is a roughly sixty percent of the population supports this. And I think this is what this is what Pedro Castillo plans to deliver on. And you see it in his symbol. You know, the the pencil is is this uh, is the is the campaign symbol of 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 Peru Libre, of Free Peru, his party. And it reflects not only his work as a as a teacher and as a as a as a unionist, as a teacher's unionist, but also the possibility to rewrite a new future for for Peru, literally in the form of drafting a new constitution. Why is the result so close to 50-50? You would think uh, this agenda would be massively popular in a country with so many poor people. I think it's incredibly polarized. I think there are lasting fears from the Sendero Luminoso that have not, that have not gone away. People who lived, lived through that experience, 
there were terrorist bombings here in the neighborhood where I'm where I'm currently staying in Lima, as recent as the 1990s. And and I think the other elections reflect this this polarization as well. Keiko lost in 2011 by by 3%, very close election. And she lost in 2016 by even smaller margins. I believe it was 0.24%. This election, we don't know what the final result would be, but I would not be I I would be very surprised if it were more than a percentage point. And I think it will be much closer to half a percentage point at the at sort of the largest margin. So I think there's just a similar assemblage of social forces gathered on each side um, with just the slight advantage to the anti-Fujimorista crowd at this moment. But, but it's important to say that, you know, as, you know, in the provinces where Keiko is losing, you know, in the, in the countryside where there are so many uh, rural poor, for example, these are massive margins. In, in Cusco, you know, Pedro Castillo is winning 85%. In Ayacucho, he's winning close to 90%. And it's here in Lima where the, where the situation is much, you know, where a third of the population is, where it's, it's shifted the other way towards, towards Keiko Fujimori. And this is the dynamic that, that, that plays out to bring such a close, a close elect, election result in a country that is so divided between urban and rural. Now, what does the Congress look like? The Congress, there is no majority in the Congress. Peru Libre will have the plurality, and I believe that's 38 members of Congress which will not be enough to pass major reforms. And even with an alliance of, of a broader left, left wing or even all of the, you know, anything that could be considered centrist to, to the far left, there's still not a majority there. So it will require, you know, a much more popular alliance to, to pass any substantive reform. And again, <laughs> go back to it again. But this is why, you know, I think the new constitution will be, will be so vital. It's unclear that there, if, I think it's legally unclear if there is a, an actual way uh, in the current constitution to, to write a new one or to, to begin that constituent assembly process. It doesn't seem like there is. And so it, it's very likely that a referendum will have to be called on this idea and move forward with, with that legitimacy from there uh, is, what it, is, what, is how the situation seems to, seems to me at the moment. And aside from the makeup of Congress, a margin of a half a percent is really not a very firm foundation to launch a radical agenda on. So <laughs> how could uh, Castillo govern at all in accordance with uh, his promises and what his supporters would hope to see? It's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge. I mean, I think even if he's victorious today, as I mentioned, the institutional pressure from every segment of the every political actor here, be it the media, the judiciary, the legislature, the ruling elite are all aligned against him. Um, he does not have the majority in the Congress and he will be, everyone will be out to see him fail. Um, and I think on the other hand, you have a population that's restive, that is eager for really substantive changes in a, in a short order and will be very disappointed if he's unable to deliver that, especially because he staked his, his political appeal on being an honest broker, by being a man of the people, um, by saying, I'm not just another politician. In fact, I'm, I'm I'm one of you, very accurately. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you can see how the media will spin this in, in one or two years if he has not been able to achieve many of the things that he's, that he's promised and, and hoped to, to achieve throughout this campaign, which, again, was why I see a new constitution as really the first step. I'm not sure that there's another, there's not a way around it. Even the center-right wing supports a new constitution. I think what's the, uh, the document that's currently governing the country is is seen as a is a failure by most of the political world, except for the the, the Fujimoristas. So, to my mind, I, I don't know why they would start uh, anywhere else. But I guess we'll have to see. And did uh, the uprisings in Colombia and then, of course, the successful um, uprisings in Chile did they, have they had any effect on uh, political consciousness in Peru? Colombia, I believe. People here have been watching and have been have been noting. They've been taking note that, much like Peruvians did in late 2020, Colombians are now going through a similar process, um, and they are looking at it with 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 fond memories of what they were able to achieve in at the end of at the end of 2020 here. But I, I would be hard pressed to say that there's any sort of discourse shaping coming from Chile or or Colombia. You know, I think. The Peruvian media, from what I've seen, has not, has not covered that really or made parallels to it in any real way. And I would argue that you know, probably most of the, most of the population is, is quite unaware of, of, of what's happening there. But of course, the political elite do know. And as you said, uh, are, are, are quite 
fearful now is seeing this 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 sweeping wave uh from colombia to chile now to peru you know i think the last place anyone thought it would it would strike um in a way that that seriously endangered the the political ruling class so we'll have to wait and see you know this is one of the the goals of of, of our electoral observation as well is to provide some interchange and exchange here between politicians, parliamentarians, political leaders from, from across, across Latin America and across the world. Um, unfortunately, our Chilean deputy, Gonzalo Winter, was not able to, to make it with our delegation due to COVID. Um, but we are joined here uh, by several members of the, or by, one, by a member of the Ecuadorian National Assembly, Jaira Noriega. And this has been a very productive part of our work so far. And finally, given what we're, we're, we've been talking about, what, what happened in Chile, what's uh, happening in Colombia, likely a victory for Lula, perhaps, in, in Brazil, is it um, getting ahead of ourselves to talk about a return of the pig tide? Yeah. And I mean, it, we may not even be getting ahead of ourselves to say it, it's, uh, it almost never receded at all. I think it just, uh, it was merely weakened. I think it's here to stay. Um, and I think this is the second uh, the second coming of the pink tide. It's, I, I would be very shocked um, if we didn't see Lula in the presidency in, in, in Brazil next year. It's quite possible that we'll see Petro as president of Colombia, very possibly a, a communist or a, at least a leftist running a new Chile with a new constitution. Uh, Pedro Castillo here in, in Peru at the head of, of this government. And of course, the return of the MAS in, in Bolivia. I, I think we're not getting ahead of ourselves and we actually need to be talking about it you know, right away, how to learn the lessons of the first pink tide and succeed where, where it failed in, in various respects. You know, I think first and foremost, regional integration. This is something that, that Pedro Castillo himself has talked about. This is something that Peru Libre and the left wing in, in Peru is very conscious of forming a much stronger Latin American block of progressive governments not only to negotiate for things like, you know, say vaccines in this moment, but also to exchange with one another their, their successes and, and lessons that they've learned in, uh, in their various national contexts. It's funny, the original Pink Tide depended upon uh, in large part on the commodity boom of the time. And here we are with another rise in commodity prices. <laughs> could be, there could be some money there to spend. I think so. I mean, I think it's, uh, I, I'm getting out of my getting out of my depth here, but uh, but I think that would we may also have to learn the learn the lesson of of moving away from strictly relying on commodity and resource uh, rents. You now in these in these processes, building something more more robust to to avoid crisis like happened the last time. Yeah, get some value added doing. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And this was you know this was a key part of I think this is a key part of, of Pedro Castillo, even though he's a man of the countryside you know, industrialization in a serious way is a, is a massive part of his program. This was also a massive part of Andres Arauz's program in Ecuador. Of course, what he was not successful in, in his campaign, but, but I, I would expect this, is, uh, uh, this to be really a primary policy line moving forward in the next, in the next five years here. That was Matt Kierkegaard, coordinator of the Progressive International's delegation to observe the Peruvian election. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of To Hell with Poverty, performed by Hotai, from the just released tribute collection in honor of Andy Gill and the Gang of Four, The Problem of Leisure. More from this in the coming weeks. Next, Andrew Cuomo, a skunk who became a hero for a while last year. Cuomo got worldwide attention, even winning an Emmy for his daily COVID press briefings last year, to the point where people were shamelessly calling themselves Cuomo sexuals. 
Many New Yorkers were shocked by this turn of events, given how badly he botched the early weeks of the pandemic, leading to thousands of unnecessary deaths, not to mention his awful record as governor since 2011. His reputation took a double hit at the turn of the year, as several women testified to being sexually harassed by him, and the state's attorney general, Letitia James, released a report showing he'd covered up the covert carnage in the state's nursing homes. Here with more is Ross Barkin, who's been covering New York City and state politics for years. His book, The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus and the Fall of New York, is imminently forthcoming from Orr Books. I had to cut about five minutes out of the interview to fit time constraints. Among the cuts, at the beginning, Ross described the experience of reading Cuomo's memoir, which he says is a work of propaganda full of lies and distortions. And then at the end, Ross tried to divine Cuomo's future, which is not one of guaranteed re-election. Although his reputation has recovered some from the lows of early this year, Ross sees Cuomo as vulnerable to a challenge by the state's attorney general, Letitia James, who is leading the investigations against him, curiously enough. I apologize if this opening sounds abrupt, but it wasn't the first question in the original. Ross Barkin. Cuomo had his reputation for a while last year of, you know, having saved the state and done such bold, heroic things. I guess his major advantage was, among other things, not being um, Donald Trump. But what's the bill of particulars? What did he do wrong that caused so much death? So it starts from the beginning, and this is always the part of the narrative that gets forgotten. And this is a big part of my book. When, when, I, when I wrote this book, uh, The Prince... I really wanted to revisit the early days of the pandemic, January, February, March of 2020, go day by day, look at what was being said. I read old transcripts. I watched old press conferences. And what you see is a pattern of misinformation, lying, downplaying the virus. You know, in the popular imagination, it was Donald Trump that said COVID wasn't a big deal. Well, Andrew Cuomo was doing the same thing. He was doing it in February. He was doing it as late as March 11th when the country was shutting down and the NBA was canceling its season. And he was still saying the fear is worse than the virus. If you look yeah, at now, some of the things you quote, I mean, he sounds like a somewhat more literate version of Trump. At times, the content is indistinguishable. Yes. So he is talking about SARS and Ebola and how, in fact, these were even scarier and really trying to create the impression that any fear of COVID was based in hysteria. And he was doing this repeatedly. And it wasn't as if he was just doing this in February. He was doing this after Washington State had started to shut down businesses and schools and was grappling with COVID themselves. So you start there, right? A total downplaying of the virus, just like Donald Trump. Then you go with New York City's belated shutdown. We knew by the time the first case was confirmed on March 1st of 2020, that the virus was spreading. That was how viruses work. You talk to any expert, people were getting sick, people were dying. And Andrew Cuomo, for a while, did not want to do a shutdown order. And then finally, Bill de Blasio, who himself was very slow to respond, he, around March 17th, said, it's time for New York City to get ready for a shelter in place. And by this point, California, specifically Northern California, was doing a coordinated shutdown among a few different counties. And this was being done with Gavin Newsom, London Breed, and other county leaders. It was a very, very, very well-organized shutdown, which did in Northern California save a lot of lives. In New York, Bill de Blasio says, we're going to shut down. Cuomo says, no, you're not. You're not doing this. And As far as I could see, he was rejecting it because Bill de Blasio suggested it, and he hates Bill de Blasio. So eventually, five days later or so, New York did get a shelter-in-place order called New York Pause, but by then, the virus had continued to spread, people had continued to get sick, and it was too late. I mean, that's the tragedy. I don't blame Andrew Cuomo for all the COVID deaths. I never do. I say that in the book. New York had 50,000 deaths statewide, and then the city had over 30,000. I don't blame Cuomo for all of those deaths. What I will say is there is no argument that can be made that New York's response to COVID in the early days was effective or competent when so many people died. If they had moved a week or two earlier, it could have saved, what, maybe half the lives that were lost? That Yeah, so Tom Frieden... 
former head of the CDC speculated that tens of thousands of lives could have been saved. The Columbia University, which I cited in my book, modeled this out as well, that the sooner you shut down, the more lives you save, right? So even take the example of California. California eventually has a death toll that exceeds New York. California, though, is still twice as large as New York. And so their death rate is still not terribly high by national standards. And so California shutting out early, particularly in Northern California, did save a lot of lives. San Francisco to this day has had relatively few COVID deaths, especially compared to a city like New York. So what we see is, do our lockdowns perfect? No, lockdowns do have a lot of issues that come with them. But if you do a lockdown early enough, you can save life. New York did not. People suffered and, and people died. Now, what about the story of the nursing homes, which uh, were, was particularly egregious, not just the policy of what he did with the patients, but also uh, the immunity? The problem with Cuomo's uh, oversight of nursing homes you know, wasn't just that people died in nursing homes. New York was not the only state that had the problem of containing COVID in nursing homes. If you If you look at New Jersey, Connecticut, Michigan, a lot of places, everyone to an extent struggled with this. The problem with New York, you, you brought up the immunity, which I'll get to in a moment. The first problem was Cuomo created a very bizarre and misleading way to count COVID deaths in nursing homes that I have concluded means he was covering them up. Basically, the way New York counted COVID deaths in nursing homes, which was pretty much how no one else counted it, was if you were a nursing home resident who got sick from COVID and you were ill and they called up an ambulance to take you to the hospital. If you happen to die in the hospital, you are not a part of the nursing home death toll. And this made literally no sense, right? If someone gets sick with COVID, you're probably going to transfer them to a hospital. So these transfer deaths were completely ignored. So New York had this artificially low nursing home death toll, which we would find out later seemed to be done in part. So Cuomo could argue in his book that he contained COVID nursing homes, which he did not, right? So the second part problem with this was the immunity issue. So Cuomo engineered in the state budget sweeping immunity for hospitals and nursing homes. And, and so what this meant was if there was malpractice, if your family member died, if the nursing home screwed up, you could not sue. And it also effectively made the nursing homes dumping grounds for bodies, because if you knew that these facilities could not be sued, it allowed you to be more careless, you know, be more reckless, not provide as much PPE, not do the things you should do. And this immunity lasted a very long time. At one time, it was so sweeping, it was pretty much covering all malpractice suits, even not related to COVID. This has since changed. But for a long time, literally all types of suits were covered under this immunity shield. So it was unprecedented and it was deeply destructive. And it was done at the behest of the hospital and nursing home lobby, the hospital lobby in particular in New York State, which is incredibly powerful and in many ways runs the state. And Cuomo, of course, has been quite close to them throughout, and not just during this crisis. Yes, the, the hospital lobby, along with the real estate lobby, are intricately tied to Cuomo. You have lobbyists who go work for the government. You have uh, former Cuomo officials who become lobbyists. It's kind of like a permanent government, public-private partnership uh, between the Cuomo administration and the private hospital sector. Another part of the story is the closure of hospitals in New York State. New York State has lost a lot of hospitals, a lot of hospital beds, and the, the private hospital sector has been pretty complicit in this because it's not the wealthy private hospitals that close down. It's the poor public hospitals or it's the poor struggling privates. Yeah, I want to return to this austerity issue in a bit, but uh, the Cuomo de Blasio relationship is a strange one. Uh, in good times, it was just kind of comically distracting, but uh, it was uh, very bad for management of the COVID epidemic. What is this relationship? Why do these guys hate each other so much? I've studied this for a long time and followed it from, his gen from its genesis since I covered Bill de Blasio's first mayoral election in 2013. And I have come to the conclusion that it's a clash between a conventional center-left liberal 
and a sociopathic centrist. Bill de Blasio, in his defense, tried very hard in the early days of his mayorality to forge a relationship with Cuomo, to build an alliance. People forget Bill de Blasio endorsed Cuomo for governor in 2014 when he was facing a left-wing challenger from Zephyr Teachout. Bill de Blasio campaigned aggressively for Cuomo's lieutenant governor pick, Kathy Hochul, who was in danger of losing to Tim Wu, the celebrated law professor. And Bill de Blasio helped engineer the Working Families Party endorsement for Cuomo back in 2014. So he tried, Bill de Blasio. He's not, he is a flawed leader. I have been very critical of him. He's arrogant. He's thin-skinned. But fundamentally, he's a center-left Democrat and quite conventional in the way he operates and approaches politics. Cuomo is not conventional. Cuomo believes in the utter pursuit of power and views any type of Democrat with power as a threat to him. And so he couldn't really push around Michael Bloomberg, one, because Michael Bloomberg was a billionaire and Bloomberg's friends were Cuomo's donors. And two, Bloomberg was not a Democrat. And so he was not a threat to Cuomo on the national stage in local government. It was just a different dynamic. Bill de Blasio comes in, you know, he wins this upset election. He is initially popular with progressives. He's trying and ultimately failing to become a national leader on this front, like a Elizabeth Warren. Um, and Cuomo resents this. And so Cuomo has gone out of his way repeatedly to undercut de Blasio and really undercut New York City because to him, they're one in the same. And that's our detriment. And I do believe if Cuomo remains in power and gets another term, this dynamic will not necessarily improve because he will view the next Democrat as a threat as well. I'm speaking with Ross Barkin, author of The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus and the Fall of New York, published by Orr Books. Now, of course, the city-state relationship is a, a, one of total subordination, right? The, uh, the city has very little power on its own. Almost everything has to get the nod from the governor. It's, it's a fraught relationship, yes, and it's, it's been fraught for a long time. Cuomo really amped it up to a new level, but yes, fundamentally, the New York City, New York State dynamic, as far as I can see, doesn't exist anywhere else because no other state has one city that is so lopsidedly important and so wealthy, right? So California, you have a lot of big cities, and California is a huge state. In New York, with if you, if you remove New York City from... New York State, New York State would be a dying Rust Belt state. If you go outside of New York City, go upstate, it's beautiful, it's lovely, I love it. It is not that economically vibrant relative to New York City. So New York City is funding the state. We are paying the taxes, we are funding the MTA, we are giving a lot. But if you look at it from a perspective of law and politics, New York City is treated like any other county, any other locality, which means it has very little power on its own, and in some cases, even less power than other localities. So New York cannot raise its minimum wage without state's permission. It cannot raise its income tax without the state's permission. It cannot change the speed limit on city streets without the state's permission. It cannot change its rent regulations without the state's permission, and on and on and on. Yeah, so you, you've long had this dynamic of New York being something of a prisoner of the state. Some of it dates back to the 1970s fiscal crisis when the state really took control with the Erstat law and never relinquished it. To this day, we are living the legacy of the fiscal crisis where the state still has this uh, lingering uh, authority over the affairs of the city. Yeah, and this is a city that is larger, I think, last time I looked, larger than about 20 states, and it has virtually no home rule powers. Yes, yes. So again, that that is the dynamic at play, where New York City is so large and wealthy and so significant, but you have an upstate legislator who can decide what education in New York City is going to look like. This dynamic has improved a bit since... New York City progressive Democrats took control of the state Senate. You have a much more city-friendly state legislature than you used to a few years ago. Cuomo does not like that. But what has not changed is there has not been any new local control powers given to New York City. Just now we have a more New York City-friendly state legislature. Let's talk some about that legislature. Cuomo, like his father, who 
I think is vastly overpraised. I never liked the guy, but uh, that's a minority. Yes, opinion. if you read my book, I, I have a, a, a section on Mario and how. Yeah, he well, is. I was happy to see that because I really never <laughs> liked the guy. But uh, one of the strange features of both of them was that they welcomed uh, Republican control of the state Senate. Why is that? Yes. So th- this is the forgotten part of Mario Cuomo's legacy. And, I, and I, I only learned this from talking to people who were you know active then and also reading old New York Times stories. And, and I was amazed to just find over and over again, and I cite them in my book, how Mario Cuomo every two to four years would promise to help the, the Democrats take control of the state Senate and then never do it and even collaborate with the Republicans. And so the question is why? Well, Fundamentally, neither Mario Cuomo nor Andrew Cuomo were terribly progressive. Mario Cuomo was better at playing at it. He was rhetorically progressive. And in the Reagan 80s, it was a low bar to clear. And if you had someone saying vaguely liberal things, they could be a national hero when neoconservatism and the right was on the march. Andrew, like his father, had a real skepticism of the left. And if you are a centrist Democrat who does not want to see progressive policy happen, but also don't want to suffer the political consequences or the blame for this policy not happening, you let Republicans control the state Senate. And it was an arrangement that worked very well for Andrew Cuomo for almost a decade. Blame the Republicans when a policy doesn't pass, throw your hands up in the air and say, I tried and smile behind the scenes and say, well, you'll never get it because the Republicans don't want it. And that's the way he wanted it. Yes, that's what he wanted. Yes. It was an Without having to take the blame for it. If it, yes, if it was up to him, Republicans would control the state Senate today. He could not prevent what was destiny and what was math, which was at some point a largely Democratic state was going to elect a Democratic state Senate. It finally happened in 2018, and now there's a supermajority. This is absolutely not what Andrew Cuomo wanted. One time when Mario was running for re-election, I called up his press office. This was the governor's press office, not a campaign press office, and asked what they thought the greatest achievements of uh, the governor's term was. And the first thing um, the, the press guy came up with was uh, he cut top tax rates. <laughs> so yes. That's the kind of mentality that Mario, who built a lot of prisons but not much yes. else. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, it's just a remarkable reputation he's earned uh, despite those facts. Yes. When I was doing research for the book, I was reading this actually very interesting blog called Tales of the Sausage Factory, which was written by former state assemblyman Dan Feldman, who actually was Chuck Schumer's successor in the state assembly and was very close to Chuck. So he, and I've interviewed him before, he's like a great repository of old New York political lore because you know, he was there and, and, and he writes about going to Albany in the 80s and being very excited for the election of Mario Cuomo. Cuomo replaces Hugh Carey who also, given the nature of the era, was supportive of like the neoliberal project in New York City. And, and so he's very excited for Mario Cuomo. And he, he gets, he looks at this executive budget that's proposed, and it's nothing but cuts. It's cuts to social welfare programs, cuts to agencies. It is a retrenchment of government. And, and that was Mario Cuomo's game. Unlike Andrew, he was a bit more charismatic and popular. So he was very good at selling the vision of like liberal New York to people while behind the scenes gutting the social safety net and building prisons. Whereas Andrew Cuomo, I would say is a more effective operator than his father because he does get more done. Like you said, Mario Cuomo's legislative legacy is non-existent. Like it's, it's quite pathetic, actually. Andrew Cuomo, in his defense, has done things. He's been forced to do them, but he has done them. But he's also a lot less charismatic than his father. And unless you're like a blinkered MSNBC liberal, you know, watching TV during COVID, you don't think Andrew Cuomo is like a progressive beacon. And I think in the national scene today, he's not viewed that way, whereas his father definitely was. Well, and let's talk a little bit about his um, politics, which are very relevant to the COVID crisis. He spent uh, much of his term as governor cutting Medicaid and even during the pandemic wanted to cut Medicaid and uh, closing hospitals, right? Yes. So Andrew Cuomo, when he first came into power, one of the first things he tried to do is cut Medicaid spending. And the interesting thing about Andrew Cuomo is as, as retrograde and centrist and triangulating as he is, he's gotten better over time. The Andrew Cuomo of his first term was a pure 
Clintonian Democrat, indistinguishable from a Republican governor, with the exception of social issues, where he and he engineers and, and, and to his credit gets done marriage equality in his first year. But um, if you look at the first term of Andrew Cuomo, he's going to war with public sector labor unions. He is militantly against raising taxes. He is fighting the minimum wage. He is, as you said, cutting Medicaid. Over time, circumstances and the growing progressive movement in the state forces him to be more of a Democrat. But yeah, fundamentally, Andrew Cuomo's impulses are always toward austerity. He can't always be an austerity governor because New York doesn't quite let you do that. You have unions that want things. You have a progressive movement. You have a state legislature, right? So, so you, you can't go and do it like Sam Brown backed in Kansas. But Cuomo was pushing this agenda of Medicaid cuts and hospital cuts and closing hospitals. He closes Long Island College Hospital in Cobble Hill. He's pushing a closure in Far Rockaway. Far Rock, you know, The Rockaways would be incredibly hard hit by COVID. And they were down one hospital from where they were when Cuomo took office. And if you read about COVID, one of the great tragedies was the lack of coordination between hospitals and the lack of hospital beds where certain neighborhoods were entirely overwhelmed. Neighborhoods in Queens, where Cuomo is from, places like Elmhurst, places that if you go back 20, 30 years ago, had a lot of hospitals. Cuomo alone is not to blame for the hospital closures because they really started under George Pataki, a Republican, but Cuomo very much was a continuity governor in pushing this agenda, pushing consolidation of healthcare, pushing the cuts in Medicaid, favoring wealthy private hospitals over the poor. And that's a story of Cuomo's governorship. If you look at Northwell Health, if you look at Mount Sinai, NYU Langone, they are the powers of the state. These very wealthy private hospital networks that turn a profit, and it's the public hospital networks that are the neglected stepchildren that are constantly threatened with cuts that get less and less and less, and they bear the burdens of the poor and the uninsured, and they're the ones who during COVID had to treat all these people. When Cuomo's reputation was at its nadir a few months ago, uh, after um, the harassment stories came out, after the uh, Attorney General's report on the nursing home deaths came out, Richard Ravitch, a a figure of the permanent government uh, (laughs) of very high standing, was quoted in the Times saying, Cuomo has no friends, nobody likes him, and when uh, things turn on him, there is no one to support him. He was getting glowing press, though. Despite that, uh, how do you explain all that glowing press? I imagine reporters don't like it very much either. So uh, why all that adulation ending in an Emmy? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question because Cuomo on one hand would not be someone who profiles as a governor who gets good press. I think his people are very good at both working with and intimidating reporters. He had, he's always had like very active and aggressive press shops. And unlike de Blasio, who, who I think overall has had a rather feeble press operation, the Andrew Cuomo press operation from day one has always been highly aggressive, highly political, and, and highly organized. And they're very good at tamping down on bad news, and they're very good at intimidating reporters into writing what they want. I personally have been berated and cursed out by Cuomo uh, staffers. That really doesn't work for me as a reporter. I don't, I don't like it. It doesn't make me want to write nice things. But to tell you the truth, you know, Cuomo inspires a lot of fear, but also respect in the press corps. Bill de Blasio is someone who never really had the respect of the, of the, the city press, you know, for, for better and for worse. Cuomo, because he is kind of like this pale imitation of Robert Moses, he is someone who projects power and authority and seriousness and gravitas He is someone who reporters, I do think, have this strange respect and affinity for because they enjoy the proximity to power. And if you read The Power Broker, people always read it as a story of New York City and Moses, which it is. It's also a story of how terrible media coverage aids and abets terrible people. And I'm always surprised, like reporters, when they 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 love the power broker and, and they they worship this book. It's sort of like they memory hold the hundreds of pages of Robert Caro's talking about how bad the press was in the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s, where they just worshipped at the feet of Robert Moses. Robert Moses gave them these lavish banquets. He gave them free stuff, and they were enraptured by his power. I do think reporters, to an extent, were enraptured by uh, Cuomo's power, and they really, by proxy feel a sense of power 
themselves, if that makes sense. I know it sounds a little strange, but... Reporters are cheap dates, I guess. They are. They are. Uh, they are cheap dates. Um, and it's probably why I don't have many reporter friends. Uh, most of my friends, most of my friends do not work in media. I think there's some of that. There's also just this kind of bandwagon effect that came with COVID, right? You have Donald Trump, as you said, who was so terrible and so incendiary and so useless. There's this desperation on the part of the public to find someone who seems like a leader. And for the press too, the press is very narrative driven. You know, I, I love fiction. I write novels, but I hate how the techniques of fiction will in, infect journalism where reporters are constantly seeking out protagonists, antagonists, heroes, villains. What's the narrative here? They're always asking themselves this question. And the problem with that is when you create narratives, you get Andrew Cuomo COVID conqueror, where the narrative makes no sense. People are getting sick. People are dying. And he is being praised as a hero. And that is in part because of Donald Trump. If there is no Donald Trump, if Andrew Cuomo, if, if COVID hits when Biden is president and similar things happen, which they might have, and New York struggles, I do not think Andrew Cuomo would have gotten this level of praise from the left-leaning prestige media, from MSNBC, from CNN, from The Times, from, from others, um, from, from the national magazines. Without Trump, I don't think this happens. And so reporters see a narrative, Trump bad, who's good? Oh, it's this tough-talking guy from Queens who does these press briefings with PowerPoints. He must be good. I was Ross Barkin, author of The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, and the Fall of New York, published by Orr Books. You can connect with his other journalism, including a substack, on his website, rossbarkin.com. That's R-O-S-S-B-A-R-K-A-N.com. I was wrong about New York City being larger than 20 states. It's actually larger than 39 states. It also has about the same population as the 10 smallest states combined, who together have 20 senators, while we in New York City share two. But of course, they're the real America, and we New Yorkers are just snooty coastal elites. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Prince of Darkness by the Mekons. The lyrics aren't a snug fit for Andrew Cuomo, but the title is. Till next week, bye.